News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. When Employment and Social Development Canada asked us to administer the Canada Student Service Grant, we regret that we didn't recognize how this decision would be perceived. That's Craig Kielberger. He's the co-founder of the WE Charity. He was testifying yesterday with his brother, Mark, at the House Finance Committee. I had a chance to speak with Global National Ottawa correspondent Abigail Beeman just a few minutes ago to get the highlights of what happened. So, Abigail, what were the highlights yesterday from what we heard from that Kielberger testimony? Well, it was four hours, which is uh, highly unusual to have a witness or witnesses in this case up for so long. The Kielbergers said that they wanted to set the record straight. One of their main points was that they didn't stand to make any money uh, from this deal with the government. They really framed it as, you know, the government called them, not the other way around, and and, and asked them to do something to help uh, young people. And they said, you know, they at one at a couple times they said that they, they wouldn't have picked up the phone uh, had they known or realize what kind of fallout, uh, which they classified as regrettable, the fallout and the consequences that have occurred here. Uh, it was uh, a tense testimony at times. MPs really struggled to to get all their questions in. There was a, a lot of uh, interrupting, a lot of, of back and, and forth. Even though there was four hours of testimony, uh, MPs felt uh, under the gun to get all their questions in. And it was a very frustrated opposition which felt uh, who felt that a lot of their questions weren't being answered. The Kielbergers said a number of times how the media got things wrong, yet they weren't always so clear in explaining on a few different fronts uh, some of those uh, discrepancies. Some they did, some they didn't. Uh, but uh, when the opposition grilled them on a few different uh, points, they weren't always uh, quite forthcoming with their answers, and that led to a lot of frustration. Yeah, I saw some of that frustration there. I think the clip that's really making the rounds today and yesterday was the Pierre Poiliev Uh, exchange that they had in regards to kind of asking about some of the behavior that their their charity undertook. Yes, that's right. And and that exchange uh, with uh, Pierre Polyev happened, I believe, around 4.30. So already three and a half hours into the testimony, uh, which is important for context. And at that point as well, the chair actually lost his uh, patience and had already yelled at Pierre Polyev, like completely raised his voice and yelled at him that if he uh, didn't get an order, he would just suspend, the chair would just suspend uh, the meeting. So uh, the Kielbergers were quite defensive. Um, in response to Pierre uh, Polyev's uh, allegations about uh, their behavior and their and their questions, but they, he, they did also did not quite answer his questions, which was true of a few uh, different points throughout that testimony. Right. I guess what I didn't get from it was if if they kept saying that they weren't going to profit from this and so on. Well, then why were they willing to do it to begin with? <laughs> For as the Kielbergers put it, from from their point of view, this is all about helping young people, which has been their mission's um, you know a, a goal from the start. They talked a lot over and over again. Their talking points went back to how they've been in, in this industry for twenty five years. Uh, they talked about how you know social enterprise as a concept is really important, but the rules in Canada uh, make it very difficult to carry that out. And so they had, a, in their words, a labyrinth of, complica- of complications in terms of their organization 
organization's uh, structure. They they really tried to frame it as they were there to do good for young people. And very similar to the government's line, it's young people who are now suffering because this program has not taken off yet. Okay, so are we going to hear from them again or is that it? They did their four hours. Uh, they they did their very long four hours. Uh, there were some threats by the opposition to, to call them back, but that didn't materialize by the end of the meeting. So that seems to be done. Uh, in terms of hearing from them again, I mean, they've declined every single uh, media request. They have not sat down with anybody for, you know, an accountability interview. But at the same time, they're very critical of the media for getting things yeah. wrong. These are these are uh, founders who who very much like to have control of the narrative. You could tell they, they were not people used to being interrupted in terms of that testimony yesterday. So the, so far, they've just issued statements when they've felt it necessary, issued press releases, but they certainly haven't answered all of my questions in terms of what I, you know, I've submitted. And I know that there are many, many, many journalists uh, working on this. So not clear when or what form, in what form we'll, we'll hear from them again. Okay. And what's coming up now? We're not done with this finance committee. There's some no. important testimony coming up. <laughs> That's right. That would be uh, tomorrow is the big day when the prime minister takes the hot seat as well as his chief of staff. It's highly unusual for a sitting prime minister uh, to testify at committee. The prime minister has agreed to do this. Uh, so we will see uh, what comes out of that testimony tomorrow. You can certainly expect more questions. And the Finance and Ethics Committee both meet again today uh, to discuss things as well. The Finance Committee is around specifically um, the ins and outs of the prime minister's testimony tomorrow and how that will all uh, work. So certainly not leaving any anybody's attention anytime soon. All right, more to come. Abigail, thank you. Thanks. That's our global national Ottawa correspondent, Abigail Beeman, summing up for us what happened yesterday at the House of Commons Finance Committee with some, at times, quite fiery testimony from Craig and Mark Kilberger. They did end up testifying for the four hours there, as Abigail mentioned. Initially, the Kilbergers had said they were only going to make themselves available for an hour and a half. I guess somebody had to explain to them, that's not how it works. If you get summoned, you testify for as long as the Finance Committee committee needs you to testify. So yes, looking ahead to tomorrow, the big one is going to be Prime Minister Trudeau and his Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, testifying. Uh, we'll find out more information, hopefully, on how this set of circumstances unfolded. And I still don't, with the problem with this whole situation is, I still have not really heard an answer to the what were you thinking question? Like nobody has given a sufficient explanation as to why anybody thought it was okay to vote on this when they all, like when Bill Morneau and Justin Trudeau had such close ties to it. After intense pressure from the families of victims of Nova Scotia's mass shooting, the federal government announced there will be a full public inquiry. Boy, that was fast, wasn't it? That is Donna Friesen, of course, from Global National there. And it was a very quick turnaround. And there was some pretty intense backlash from the families of the victims and their supporters after the massacre in port pig back in April. So what we heard this week was that the government had decided that a three-person review of the situation would suffice. Wouldn't suffice, though, for those families and the supporters, as I mentioned. There were protests. Even the Liberal MPs who represent the areas were upset about it enough so that yesterday we got that turnaround. And now there will be a public inquiry. Paul Polengo has written many articles about this in the Halifax Examiner that pretty much laid out the case for the public inquiry. He joins us now once again this morning to talk about this. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. What a change that was, huh? Well, uh, 
Yeah, I guess when you start having the uh, families of the victims marching on the police stations, it's sort of sends a message to the government that maybe they're not going in the right direction. Yeah, so what are we getting now? Is this an everything that everybody had asked for? Is this a full-on public inquiry? Well, it's still not clear. I'm still very suspicious of what's going on because, uh, you know, the, the, the government and the RCMP have done everything they can to put a lid on this thing, and it's sort of getting out of hand. And now they've reluctantly said, well, these same commissioners are going to hold a public inquiry and they can call witnesses. I still want to see what they're going to try to do uh, because I think the story is so explosive that uh, they're still going to try to contain it and it's going to be up to the media to essentially get the story out before the inquiry is held. I think the inquiry will be held in the media before they have the real inquiry. So, Paul, why do you feel that we need this public inquiry? Why is it so necessary? Well, there's so much going on here. First of all, you have 22 people killed in a situation where, you know, Simi, we talked about this before. There was two massacres. There's the first massacre Mm -hmm. on Portapique Beach Road where the 13 people are killed, and the RCMP seems to have been sort of transfixed by the moment and didn't do anything to preserve life. The, The killer had a little nap or something, uh, for six hours, then went on a rampage the next day where the RCMP knew who he was, knew that he was in a car, a police car, and still did not block any roads, didn't put out a provincial alert, didn't do anything to save lives, and nine more people were killed, including a Mountie, uh, Heidi Stevenson. It's it just, it's, it's absolutely uh, uh, mind-blowing. Like, what happened? What, why could you have such an epic failure of policing? What happened? So that's the first part of the story. And then mm-hmm. there's still more to it after that. So it's been a couple of months now already. And has there been any, do you think, explanation out of the RCMP about what went wrong? No, the RCMP, it, if you look through the early days of the press clippings, the RCMP basically put out this story that... Uh, he was a clever uh, uh, person who planned this out well, and, and it was a chaotic, fluid, chaotic situation, and we were doing our best to keep up. And then subsequently you find out they really didn't do anything to get in front of him, and even by the road admission they said, okay, it wasn't pre-planned, it was spontaneous. That's their own announcements. They keep changing the story. They kept yeah. changing the story on the timeline, like, when the first call came in and when it arrived. It's like they're trying to get a story together that they all don't know. And that's not how the police are supposed to operate. The police are supposed to operate what they have facts. They operate with facts. They know when things happen. So the other thing I found interesting about this about face by the government is that their own MPs from that area of Nova Scotia did not support them on this. Well, it's uh, it's sort of gotten a little crazy down here. Like, everyone is sort of involved in it now. And, you know, it started out, when I started doing stuff, uh, you know, on CBC and other places, beginning two days after, I had people, including the mayor of Lunenburg, uh, contact me and saying, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be saying bad things about the police. These are our first responders. And I kept plowing on through the Halifax Examiner and McLean's outlining what had happened and uncovering what had happened really happened and you know the people who are against me including the families at the beginning at the end really? the families were marching on the police stations so in the beginning and they were in the beginning everybody was saying you shouldn't be saying this what are they saying to you now 
I got a call uh, yesterday morning before all of this was announced from one of the family members. The first contact I've ever had with the families because I ha- I've stayed away from them. I didn't want to deal with them. My, my job is to deal with the police. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I, I, I took my job. And uh, I got a call from one of the family members at 8 o'clock yesterday morning saying, you know, I want to contact you and tell you that the families are 100% behind you now. Really? Yeah, so it's, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that that uh, all of this has happened, because there's been this sort of unification of, of thought that, yeah. you know, like what I'm doing them, you know, so you know how how, much, how deep it is? You ask the question, how, how, what are people in Nova Scotia thinking? Every year we get our windows cleaned by this company in uh, Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, and they come and three guys came through the door to clean our windows the other day, and it's all done under my wife's name, who's Matt, which is McNamara. And I had no idea they knew who I was. And as soon as they came through the door, the one guy says, "You've been a busy boy." Mm-hmm. And I says, "Why?" And he says, and he started reciting to me all the the sort of inner sort of workings of this the investigation I've been doing. So not only he, but that's typical of what's going on in Nova Scotia. Everyone was reading it and finding out about it on YouTube and everywhere and else, yeah. Podcasts everywhere. Uh, so okay, so when is this going to get underway? Do we know? We don't know. I think that's, there's a okay. lot more to come out yet. Um, I'm pretty confident that there's going to be even some more sensational stories in the next little while. All right, then I guess we'll be talking to you again, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Sue, anytime. That's Paul Palango. He's a Nova Scotia journalist, author of three books on the RCMP, and he has been writing extensively over the last couple of months about essentially what went wrong in terms of the law enforcement response on the night of and then the next day, the shooting in Port-a-Pique that left 22 people dead, either by fire or by shooting. And the government, the federal government, took a lot of heat this week by saying there wasn't going to be a public inquiry. Yesterday, the big about face, that there will be a full public inquiry and that witnesses can be compelled and will have to give testimony. And that is a big change, a direct result of the families being upset. People, there were protests they had in Nova Scotia yesterday. They marched on the police station. The local MPs, liberal MPs, were not even told or consulted by their own government as to what was going to happen. They were speaking out saying they were not happy about this. So yeah, a big change and still so many questions about the response that night and what went wrong. You know, this next question is actually a tough one. There was a new nationwide survey that was done and they asked the question, who do you think is Canada's best prime minister? And so they have revealed who Canadians picked for their choice as best prime minister from the last 50 years. And I have to say, those results may surprise you. Have a listen. Who do you think has been the best Canadian Prime Minister in the past 50 years? There's been Pierre Trudeau, Brian Mulroney, Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin, Stephen Harper, Justin Trudeau, and those who served just briefly, John Turner, Joe Clark, Kim Campbell. Well, the Company Research Co. did a poll and they found the highest ranked head of government in the past 50 years, according to the people who responded to this survey, was Pierre Trudeau. People don't believe anymore what they read in the newspapers or see in the see on the television. He served in office starting in 1968, taking over from Lester B. Pearson. Trudeau was Canada's 20th and 22nd Prime Minister, serving again after a brief stint by Joe Clark from 1980 to 1984. In my decision to lead the Liberal Party once more, I very much want Western Canadians 
not only to feel but to be fully involved in the continuing nation building of Canada. <clears throat> I want to form a government with good people and good representation from Western Canada. According to the survey, 23% of Canadians, so about one in four, said that he was the best prime minister. But that number was a bit higher for Atlantic Canada, Ontario and Quebec. In second place was Stephen Harper at 16%. Lorena and I entered public life because we believe that hardworking Canadians should keep more of the money they earn. Because, because friends, we believe that in a dangerous world, Canada must, without apology, advance our values, defend our interests, and stand by our friends. Justin Trudeau ranked third. The last few months have been hard. There's no question about that. But throughout this pandemic, we've been there for one another. Because that's what it means to be Canadian. Followed by Jean Chrétien and Brian Mulroney. But let's pause right here for just a moment and think about this. So, according to this survey, the current Prime Minister ranks in third position. But this survey was conducted from July 6th to July 8th. On July 3rd, it was announced We Charity would no longer be running the $900 million student volunteer program. Canadians didn't have a lot of the facts at that point, information that would be revealed in the weeks that followed. Well, we now know that the Trudeau family has directly profited from that charity. The Prime Minister's mother, brother and wife receiving hundreds of thousands of dollars in appearance fees over the years. Canada's Ethics Commissioner is now investigating this relationship. Last week I acknowledged that I should have recused myself and I apologized. But our goal was and is to provide opportunities for students to serve in their communities right across the country in this unprecedented time. Obviously, the way it unfolded was regrettable, and the program is no longer uh, unfolding as we'd said. If this survey was redone today, would Justin Trudeau still hold the third place position? If you took this survey today, would you rank our current Prime Minister in the same position, higher or lower? So again, to recap, according to this survey, Pierre Trudeau was number one, Stephen Harper, number two. Justin Trudeau, number three, Jean Chrétien, number four, and Brian Mulroney, number five. Do you agree with the results of this survey? Who would you say has been the best and the worst Canadian Prime Minister in the past 50 years? Good question, right? Interesting choices that people made on that. Number one, Pierre Trudeau. And number two, Stephen Harper. I think time sometimes needs to go by uh, before people can, you know, decide, did I like that person? What, what did I like about that person? What did I not like about that person? I will admit I was a little surprised Jean Chrétien was a little bit higher, but let's talk to Nikki Reitmeyer about this. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. I think there's going to be a lot of regional differences in this survey as well. You know, people from the West are going to have one idea of who they thought was the better prime minister. People from the East having a little bit of a different opinion on that as well. I know for Alberta, for example, they ranked Justin Trudeau uh, 25% saying that he was the worst prime minister that we've had in the past 50 years. But overall, he came out on uh, on top of a third yeah. position, I should say. So you're definitely going to see some regional differences here. The Trudeau one is in the pre Pierre Trudeau one, I should say, is, is interesting. He comes out on top, even though I know you probably hear everybody doesn't like him. Oh, I hated him. Well, I just got this great email here from Rick who said, the man I love to hate, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, he said, <laughs> but still calls him the best prime minister. He says, as much as I disagreed with him and was a 
annoyed with him. In retrospect, he was the best PM ever. His repatriation of the Constitution, epic achievement, right? A famous Mm. response when asked how far he was prepared to go during the Quebec crisis, well, just watch me, and his enacting of the War Measures Act to deal with it. He said, shocking at the time, but now seems appropriate. And I think that's exactly it. People go, oh, at the time, we thought that was shocking, but... Look at all the, like in hindsight, yeah, I can see why people would pick him as the best PM. I actually had my uncle tell me a really interesting story about a week ago. Uh, when he was a young man here in here in Vancouver, he was working at the yacht club. He was just a teenager. And he ended up working on a, a yacht that Pierre Trudeau, who was prime minister at the time, chartered. So he had, you know, a brief opportunity to spend a little bit of time with Pierre Trudeau when he was just, you know, when Pierre was prime minister, but my uncle was just a young, a young guy working on a boat, basically. And he said, you know, he was actually, he's actually kind of a nice guy. He was really reasonable, (laughs) actually kind of friendly. And he recognized me on the ski slopes here a couple years later, too. That's amazing. That is amazing. A a neat story. But he said, yeah, you know, this this persona that seemed a bit bit bigger than life, but uh, was actually a pretty decent guy uh, when, when, you know, one-on-one anyways, at least with the staff of a boat that, you know, he could have turned a blind eye to. Well, that's exactly it. Could have turned a blind eye to. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. If you want to weigh in with your thoughts, uh, even grudgingly, when you look back, is there somebody you go, okay, that was the best prime minister of the last 50 years? Email me, Simi at cknw.com. Well, still to come today, of course, the big news, as we were just talking about with Vaughn Palmer, over the noon hour, so probably around 1230, there will be a press conference. Parents, teachers, anyone involved in the school system is going to definitely want to pay attention to that because it's to explain what the school system is going to look like in September. Will your child be headed back to the classroom? Will there be distancing? What are the protocols going to be? Uh, We hope that all of those questions are now going to be answered because, you know, time is running out. I'm sure parents are feeling the pressure, right? September is not that far away at this point. We're heading into the kind of what we call the last long weekend of the summer of BC Day, right? And that's this weekend. So yes, that's very important. We're going to have more about that right now, though. Let's talk about one of the hardest hit industries in this pandemic, and that is the hospitality industry. What is it going to look like in the future? Well, Deloitte has actually been studying some of these trends. And to talk more about what they found, Leslie Peterson joins us now, the Deloitte National Leader on Transportation, Hospitality and Services. Leslie, thanks for being here. Oh, good morning. Happy to be here. Now, tell me, what is it that you found? So what is our hospitality industry going to look like in the future? Uh, well, great, great question. So, you know, as you, as you can imagine, it's obviously been very hard hit since the impact of coronavirus back into March. And you actually saw, saw the shuttering of, of hotels, of restaurants, um, you know, flight travel, you know, basically went to zero. And, um, you know, as we started to take a look at the state of our con- consumer tracker, what we've noticed as a result of that is consumer behaviors and attitudes are, are very much changing. And so as we start to look forward to recovery, organizations in the hospitality sector are going to be having to think differently about the customers and how they engage with them, knowing now that that, that trust is something that's very important to them and the safety and health of them, themselves and their family is very key as well. Right. So you can't just like open your door and expect people are going to show up. <laughs> no, that might not be the best option. <laughs> okay, so then what is that trust? How do you build that trust? What does that mean? What are people looking for? Yeah, so so people want to to understand and know what organizations are doing to ensure the safety of both themselves but also of their employees. And so 
um, you know, being very vocal and um, transparent about the, the procedures and processes that people are, that they're taking in order to ensure that that safety. So whether um, it's a you know in large uh, large facilities, for example, whether it's a time temperature checking at the door, whether it's the sanitization procedures that you're using from the moment that you enter a facility through to the time that the facility is cleaned and then prepared for someone else to take it on. Um, so different, t- different organizations, whether it's a restaurant or a hotel, are going to take different procedures to do that. But being transparent uh, and, uh, and communicating proactively to customers is going to be necessary in order to bring them back. So then do businesses need to treat this as though these are potentially permanent changes, not just temporary while we deal with this pandemic? You know, that's a really good question. Um, I think, you know, when we look at situations like this, I think uh, the pandemic creates, you know, both challenges, but I think also creates opportunities. And so, you know, I would say a number of the changes that have resulted as a result of the pandemic uh, may have been a bit of a reaction uh, to it, but I think in some cases has created, you know, you know, benefits that they had, that had been unexpected. So for example, if you think about hotel, for example, uh, many of them had started to shift to keyless entry for the hotel rooms. Mm-hmm. Now they did that as a cost-saving measure, but now, given the concept of trust and touchless and seamless and stress-free travel, um, that is now actually going to be considered potentially a revenue generator. And so, as we think about, you know, you know no one knows how long the, the, the environment is going to last, you know, when in, in this state of COVID. And so, a number of these procedures, um, I think, will actually stay in place. I think a number right. of them are going to stay in place until such a time as some treatment has been found. Interesting. Leslie, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to be here today. That's Leslie Peterson, the Deloitte National Leader on Transportation, Hospitality and Services. They have been studying the trends for the future of the hospitality industry. And they said, as you heard Leslie say, some things are definitely here to stay when it comes to how we treat going out to the hospitality industry now. And you know what she was just talking about there reminds me of what happened to the airline industry post 9-11. These things that airlines learned that they could monetize and people will pay for, all those extra charges, charges for food, no more blood blankets, all that kind of stuff. That all happened post 9-11. And I wonder if we're going to see something similar in terms of hotels and extra cleaning and all of that or something they're just going to tack charges onto now. So we're talking about the economy today and different sectors that were hit quite hard by the pandemic. Some remain hit quite hard. Some areas, though, you are seeing many people head back to work. Now, Brendan Bernard is our guest, an economist at Indeed Hiring Lab, and he analyzes trends in the job postings that they see on their site. Good morning, Brendan. Good morning. So what do you see bouncing back out there? Like, what is being posted? Uh, So I see a few sectors where uh, there were major declines earlier on in this crisis, but have seen some momentum since. Um, so, uh, so some of these sectors are areas where there would be pent up demand when like during those shutdown months, uh, there was lots of services or goods that were that would have been bought that weren't. And once things reopened, uh, people are now going back to them. So a few areas uh, stick out um, retail and uh, and support occupations for retail, like loading and stocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've seen significant uh, bounce backs in job postings, as well as in certain personal services. So, for example, uh, uh, beauty and wellness. Uh, people could only stay away from the barber shops for so long, and uh, and now we're seeing a big uh, increase in uh, uh, job postings in that sector as well. Okay, so some things are coming back, but what is not coming back right now? So there, there's some areas of the economy that are just going to be uh, running at low capacity uh, until pandemic fears really are uh, 
behind us. So uh, hospitality and tourism still lagging, aviation still lagging, as well as uh, areas like uh, sports. So fitness uh, instructors, instructors and coaches, um, uh, they, they're da- they're down as well. And and then when we talk about the largest sector that's uh, been hit by this uh, crisis, um, food services. There, uh, we, we have seen a bit of a rebound, but still way below um, uh, its previous trend and, uh, and, and lagging the recovery uh, overall. Right. That's so interesting then. So on your website, you have areas where there's probably a lot of job postings, right? And then others where there's none. Yeah, so I, I think in most areas of the economy, things are still a bit tepid. Um, you don't have w- one of the things that causes uh, employers to post jobs is people switching jobs, and I think in this environment, there's a uh, job seekers have a bit of a reticence uh, jumping to something new just because it's such an uncertain environment. So there's so there's probably a bit less churn going on in the labor market that that is keeping the overall numbers down. Um, but but it's definitely the case that you know you have some areas you know healthcare uh, for example where job openings are looking fairly strong and then others like these um, uh, sectors especially vulnerable to the pandemic that really haven't so, uh, bounced back too much. So Brennan, has it been steady over the last couple of months in terms of postings, or is it still kind of up and down? Uh, well, in general, uh, I would say it's a uh, gradual improvement, but from such a low base that we've still got a ways to go uh, to, to get back uh, f- fully where we where we were. So compared to trend, uh, the c- Canadian job postings fell 49 percent um, uh, in the second half of March through early, through mid-April. And since then, it's been a slow climb back up. And uh, this past Friday, we were at 30 percent. So uh, major decline and a partial rebound since, but one that at least has been steady. So if someone is looking for a job right now, where should they look? Well, that, that's always going to depend on the specific job seeker, you know, your interests and skills. Um, but if, if you're looking, uh, if, if, if the kind of specific role uh, doesn't, doesn't matter so much, then uh, and, and you're not too worried about uh, the health risks, you know, I think then... Um, Areas of retail are, 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 are uh, posting opportunities. Um, construction also has seen, has seen a, a, a nice bounce back. Um, and and we, we're seeing a, a job openings increase in driving uh, as well. So, so, so there, 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 there's a real range uh, there. Um, and, and it's really going to come down uh, to, you know, the person's specific experience, interests and skills. All right, Brendan, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. That is Brendan Bernard, an economist with Indeed.ca at Indeed Hiring Lab. So they essentially analyze the trends in the job postings that are on the site, which sectors are hiring, which sectors are not. So they're seeing a lot of industries kind of rebound in terms of the job postings, needing employees, other areas still that hospitality, the tourism sector, uh, hard hit. Not as many postings from that particular area there. How's your job search going? Are you back at work or are you still looking or are you thinking you're out of a job at this point? You can email me, simi at cknw.com and tell your story so we can share that with other people and let them, let them know what's going on out there. So coming up at about 1230 this morning, we're going to hear Education Minister Rob Fleming present the plan for schools to reopen in September. But 
Advocates are worried that students who have disabilities may fall by the wayside. They already haven't been looked after very well during this pandemic ever since it started back in March. So we wanted to talk more about that now. Nicole Kalu joins us, a senior board member with BC Ed Access, and we'll talk about what they're hoping to see from the plan. Nicole, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's been a rough couple of months, I know, for parents everywhere, but would you say particularly for parents of students with disabilities? Um, I'm not going to say particularly because I think your reality is your reality and a pandemic's going to hit everybody hard. I am definitely going to say that um, the exclusions that we saw before um, the pandemic, they were a lot worse for our kids after. And um, the fact that a lot of kids were able to get back into school and our kids never were um, is definitely a huge issue. And what was even the online learning like for kids with disabilities? I mean, that must have been very challenging. Um, It was the spectrum. So, um, you know, with our kids, one size doesn't fit all for education for any child, for our kids especially. And what happened was, you know, that that idea that this is the way we're going to be doing it. And if you can do it, great. If you can't, um, too bad. That's that's what a lot of our families had to deal with. So if your child cannot attend online learning, which was my daughter, Mm -hmm. then there was no learning at all. That must have been very rough for her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of it was really, really rough. And um, I think there was so much going on in my family that um, it it was in the mix. Um, But I think when I got very resentful about the situation was when, um, in May, when we definitely knew that kids had the right, kids with disabilities, the ministry had made allowances for our kids to be in school, when um, it still wasn't extended, and in June... Um, we never got up to full day for her in school. Right. Okay. So what do you want to hear today from this announcement? I definitely want the minister to acknowledge that there were gaps in services for this population. Um, I think what the ministry did, they had it set up that our kids should have been able to go to school. The school districts did not do the work that they were supposed to do to accommodate um, this population of child. And there are very, very serious consequences. So, He is going to say what he said before. I'm pretty confident. Um, I think what he also needs to follow up with is that school districts who don't do this, there's going to be this A, B, or C is going to happen, or we are going to check to make sure that every single child is in school, or we're going to partner with MCFD or some sort of plan so that school districts can't just not provide the service. So you think clearly that is where the breakdown is, right? That it depends on what school district you live in. Yes, and sometimes it depends on your school, literally. Like, if the principal just doesn't want to do it, they're not going to do it. And if you were struggling to get your child in school or get an education before the pandemic, during, and during the pandemic, they, they just deserted, deserted families. Is, do you want to have your daughter back in school? Is it possible for her to do that? Are, are there any health concerns involved in that? So my daughter is finished. This was her very, very last year, so she finished. Um, I would absolutely, I sent her in June. I didn't send her in May. And if I, I would send her. Yeah, absolutely. If, if I could, I would. She's in the adult system now. My other two kids are in high school, and they will be going for whatever time they're allowed to go. And how has the communication been with parents then? Um... That sounds I like think, a tough one. That sounds yeah, like a that tough, is a tough one, yeah. one because we all know that we don't know yet. Like we're, we're very well aware of the fact that we don't know what the plan is yet. I fully expect that his announcement is going to be something along the lines of what 
we've already heard like a plan A, B, or C, and we don't know if it's going to be plan A, B, or C. That's kind of what my expectation is. Um, I think the fact that he's doing the announcement today, you know, we're coming into August. That's showing that, you know, there's an attempt to be very communicative. The breakdown between what he says today and what um, information goes out to parents directly is going to be something that he needs to address. Okay, so then what would be your message to him? What would be my message to him? Um, to, to really embrace the fact that, um, that a certain population was completely failed during the pandemic, just in spite of his best efforts, um, for him to continue to push, you know, push the narrative that every child deserves an education, that everybody needs to do it as safely as possible, um, and that parents are willing to work with schools and their school districts and the Ministry of Education. All right, Nicole, we'll wait and see what happens. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. It's Nicole Kaler, Senior Board Member of BC Ed Access, concerned about students with disabilities and how they're going to be treated. And as you heard her say, it really comes down to the school boards. The ministry can say one thing that this is their intention, but if school boards don't enforce this and school boards, in many cases, schools don't follow through, well, the parents of those students get left out. If you want to tell your story, simi at cknw.com. Well, good news about that orca whale who made international headlines back in 2018 for sad reasons back then. She had carried her dead calf more than 1,500 kilometers. Well, the good news today is that same whale looks like she's pregnant again. We wanted to learn more about this and how good this news is. So joining us is Holly Fearnback, who's a marine mammal expert. Holly, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, I know you're part of the team that made the discovery. How did you do this? How did you figure this out? Uh, yes, this is um, it's part of our long-term study. We're actually entering the 12th year now of, of doing monitoring using something called aerial photogrammetry. So we non-invasively fly a, a drone um, high above the whales, usually above a um, 100 feet or more, and we collect high-resolution images uh, that then we get these quantitative measures so we can monitor growth, uh, estimate size, and evaluate body condition. So it's something that we've been doing for a long time, starting with um, actually helicopters in 2008. So we've been able to, um, during this winter, going into early summer, been able to collect um, aerial images of, of all of JPOD and then a number of the KNL pod members. Okay, and so then this was this a, a surprise, or were you expecting that sooner or later this would happen? Um, we were expecting it. It's actually um, one thing with the, the southern resident killer whale population. They have been struggling uh, with reproductive success, so we usually have um, a number of individuals each each year that are that are pregnant, but uh, most of those don't actually carry through um, to a successful birth. And it's been documented from studies from the University of Washington that they have about um, about two thirds reproductive failure. Um, so it's a very positive thing, and we're optimistic about about the success of this birth. But it is something that we regularly see, you know, pregnant females that that don't successfully. Um, give birth. Right. But we are, we are hopeful. The population certainly needs it right now. Yeah, I think a lot of people are hopeful. That's why the story is generating so much interest. So what, does this mean there will be now more of an eye kept on this particular whale? And what is that process going to be like? Um, no, I mean, it's actually one of the reasons, you know, from, from just a quick, like I said, we have to do these quantitative measures and we provide these, these metrics to, to management groups and then for our studies as well. But um, one of the reasons why we did come forward and, and mention then we also um, have a blog out with L72, she's also pregnant, um, and then J35 is just for a call for space for these whales. They, um, you know, one of the key threats is, is declines in their primary 
spray Chinook salmon, um, but two other threats are toxins and vessel disturbance. And we've been seeing a, a pretty high level of vessel disturbance around the population. Um, so we saw this as an opportunity as a call for space for the whales to, to give them a, a quiet environment and enough space to forage. Um, so it's one of the reasons we came came forward. So we're going to continue monitoring the population as, as normal. September is our key monitoring month. So we'll be hopefully be able to fly over the entire population and collect aerial images to assess condition and, and monitor the pregnancy of these whales. Uh, we you know have confirmed um, just from, from looking at the, the pictures, not from the, the measures yet that we have, um, you know, members from all three pods that are pregnant. So that's that's. You know, it's very promising. Very. I know. Fingers crossed, though, right? You feel like you just you don't want to get too excited yet. Right, right. And one of the things that we've seen in the past number of years is that when the females do successfully give birth, um, if they can't find enough food, they struggle to, to keep themselves alive and their little calves alive. And so it's something that we're always excited to see pregnant females, but then we just hope that, you know, everything comes out well <laughs> in the end. Yes, we all hope that. Holly, thank you so much. And listen, good luck. Okay, thank you. Thanks so much. That is Holly Fernback, who's a marine mammal expert, part of the team that monitors and makes the discovery of these particular pods of southern resident killer whales. And they are very excited about the pregnancies in those pods. And yes, September will be an important month. And I know lots of people, researchers and just general average people as well, have their fingers crossed that there is good news there on that front. You know, residents of the Strathcona neighborhood are not happy about the homeless encampment in Strathcona Park, which has been there for weeks now and doesn't show any sign of diminishing at all. And now they are thinking about trying to put pressure on the city of Vancouver by threatening to withhold property taxes. How would that work? Well, Jamie McLaren is the lawyer that is representing those Strathcona residents, and he is here to talk about that this morning. Jamie, thanks for being here. Happy to be here, Simi. What is, the, what, what is the idea behind this? How does this work? Sure. Well, first of all, I, I'm a Strathcona resident, and I'm not representing them, or my fellow residents, as a lawyer. I'm a resident of nine years here in the community. And the idea is to, um, to uh, use tax resistance as a community effort to make Strathcona a safer and healthier place for everyone, and, and I include the KT campers in that. Um, we view the campers as our neighbors, and, and their safe, health and safety issues are, are, are our health and safety issues. So this, this is a campaign to uh, withhold, to have property owners withhold uh, a portion or the entirety of their property taxes that are due from the, from the city in order to apply pressure on them um, to essentially meet some uh, or as many of the demands as possible of, of the camp itself, right? And, and to um, the main goal, the primary goal, of course, is permanent housing, social housing, Vancouver needs much more social housing uh, built. And in the meantime, a, a better, more supported and culturally safe campsite for the campers uh, that's not on parkland. And we've identified some, some uh, feasible areas for that. Okay, so how has anything like this ever been done before? I think tax resistance has been used um, globally for, for centuries as a, as a tactic, I think, to, to gain the attention of governments and to apply pressure. Uh, I'm not sure if it's uh, happened here in Vancouver uh, lately, um, but it's it's something we're we're we're, we're doing because we're uh, at wit's end here. We feel very much, or most of us, I think, feel very much abandoned by the our elected officials, and it's it's one of our 
our only uh, levers to mm-hmm. pull at this stage. Yeah. And so has your group of residents, and you included then, Jamie, have you talked with the campers about this, saying, listen, we'd like to work with you to help fix the situation? Yeah, well, what we're doing, so this is the early stages of, of planning. Uh, we'd hope to go door-to-door with our uh, declaration next week, and we're, we're trying to get renters on site as well as um, Strathcona residents of social housing. So Strathcona's got uh, big social housing developments here that are real assets to the community. We'd like to get them on site, some of the elderly, and especially the, the camp residents. So um, in the next few days, I hope to go to the camp and to speak to their leaders about having a unified front here and presenting a real unified and singular message to to all levels of government that they need to act now. Do you see any support from the city, you know, from what you can tell, the parks or anything like that? Um, A few councillors, certainly Pete Fry has been very uh, vocally supportive of our of our interests here in Strathcona. He's a Strathcona resident himself, and there's been a few other councillors. The mayor, as far as I can tell, has been completely absent from this discussion. And despite being invited several times by our residents' association to, to come to the table and talk about this issue, um, the province, some of our provincial politicians have been a bit more active. But, but I mean, that's, the bottom line has been very little to no action in order to um, find a, a very constructive solution to this to this problem. Right, so it sounds like you're at the very kind of early stages of organizing this. Yeah, we hope to, next week, we hope to have signatures and um, and to present, maybe in a week and a half, present a, a very long list of, of property owners um, who are withholding their taxes from from uh, the city and the residents, uh, the renters and camp residents uh, who support them as well. You talked about finding a permanent camp space. I know that's been you know discussed as well. Uh, any ideas on where that might be? Yeah, the, the campers seem to, uh, they like the, uh, the Crab Park location, although that's on Port Authority lands, and so that presents some difficulties. There's a, uh, a large parking lot, which is the site of the, the new St. Paul's Hospital that is currently, I'd say, a quarter occupied by by new brand new cars waiting to be sold by dealerships and, and that's still in Strathcona and when many of us welcome that as a site for a, a fully supported and sanctioned campsite and, and by supported I mean something with hot water showers uh, electrical outlets um, what the campers need to to you know carry on a productive life and get up on their feet and 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 and, and feel a sense of community and, and belonging and so we think that's very important and so um, that's just one area where where we see this being feasible. All right. Well, Jamie, keep uh, keep in touch with us. Let us know how this goes. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Jamie. I will do. All right. That's Jamie McLaren. He's a lawyer who lives in the Strathcona neighborhood and is helping to advise the residents there and working with the people who are camping out in Strathcona Park there about, you know, telling the city, listen, what you're doing is not enough. Uh, thinking about withholding their property taxes to really get the city's attention. What do you think of that idea?